Welcome to the Reform Millennials Podcast. Tune in each week to hear Joel Shackleton and his guests' insights into public stock market news, North American politics, and the world of entrepreneurship and startups. Joel is a portfolio manager and partner at GIM Wealth, an Edmonton-based private wealth manager. The goal of this podcast is to help millennials better invest their time and money by taking advantage of long-term market trends, whether that means finding the right startup to work for, a private company to invest in, or new ways to protect and grow your assets. All right, Brian, welcome to the Reform Millennials podcast. Thank um, you. For those that are listening, Brian is a very accomplished man. Brian is, so, is a social venturist, entrepreneur, and angel investor who co-founded Black Tech Capital. He is the founder and CEO of Enlighten, as well as co-director of Green Tech Global Impact Accelerator at the Founder Institute. In addition to his impressive professional track record, Brian is also a professional engineer, making his interest entrance into an emerging energy ventures, all the more impactful. So Brian, thanks again for coming. I think a good place to start our conversation would be to define what a social venturist is, because I think it's a little bit confusing, at least for, for people that are usually used to hearing venture capitalist, but right, a social right. venturist, that's special. So I mean, it's a phrase that I coined, right? It's a term that I coined it because what I found is most people had an understanding of what a venture capitalist is, you know, where it's somebody that's investing money into, you know, putting capital into companies with high growth potential with an exchange for equity in that company. So you're taking that risk and helping the company grow. And people are familiar with the term of a philanthropist, right? Which is somebody that's putting money, that's promoting the welfare of others and is donating that money. So there was nothing in, out there to really define someone that was putting capital into a business that was for social good. So came up with the term social venturist, which is really as a, you know, a private equity investor providing capital to companies that are doing social good, which I define as being there for people and planet. That's what the, is promoting. So yeah, that's and, my definition you know, of a social venturist. Mm -hmm. No, I really like it because, I mean, in my industry, ESG has been the definition and most people have no idea what that acronym means. And then mm -hmm. for people that are listening, it's environmental, social and governance. But I think for, for in yours, from your perspective, social venturist can mean a little bit more than that. It might fall within those parameters, but in public markets, it's it, that's the way it's defined. And I think what you've done is actually quite unique. And I, I think it's a really great way of, of defining your your goals and making it simple. So Love being um, <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And at least in, in my opinion, I think Canada does a fantastic job of promoting this, especially from the perspective of government. What is the importance of social capital in, in the Canadian private markets? And I mean, how does black tech capital fit into that market? Well, social capital is, is really important in the sense that you've got, as I said, going back to philanthropy, there's people out there donating mon money to make a difference, but that really doesn't typically help companies to grow and scale and do better. Right. And and to make and to have that larger impact. And that's where social capital becomes really important, where you've got entrepreneurs that are out there that want to make a difference, that want to do good for the world. But they also want to earn a living. They also want to seek more investors to grow larger. So that's where social capital becomes really important 
in, in helping them develop to make those differences they want to do. And I think it does it faster, in my personal opinion, than through philanthropist methods. And it's focused in that area versus just venture capital. It's focused just on a return. This is focused on a return that's making a difference. Mm-hmm. So, no, I think that that's, that's important to kind of define because, mm-hmm. at least for myself, a, lo- a big difference between the Canadian entrepreneurial scene, startup scene, and the United States one is really the, the the team leading the charge. In the United States, back in the 1940s, 30s, 20s, even 50s, 60s, whatever, they had a really large focus from the government where they funded an enormous amount of what is today some of the leading tech companies. I, I shouldn't say the companies themselves, but the technology that is derived within those businesses. And I read a book recently called The Entrepreneurial State, and it's developed a moderately controversial opinion in, in me that the government often carries a large burden in solving the hardest problems for society. People may know this if you've listened to my podcast for a long time where I, where I discuss like the GPS that was created by the United States government, the, 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 the computer, a whole host of things that have been developed by government funding. And for me, I think the, the wonderful thing about government money in this space is that it de-risks opportunity moving forward for private companies to take hold. And I think that in Canada, our government has done a pretty great job de-risking the area in which I see you moving yourself into, which is this emerging energy ventures. And I'd like you to speak to that a little bit, where are we in in terms of tech and energy, the the tech and energy sector, are we finally, is it de-risked enough to make a significant profit? The short answer I think is yes, but I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate upon that, right? So for the clean energy sector, I mean, the one way you can look at it from the Canadian perspective, Canada is relatively speaking on the world stage is a small country, right? Especially compared to our, our neighbor to the south, you know, we're, we're a tenth their size. So our companies need that extra help to, to get it going. But traditionally, you know, going back even from technology in years, you look at the Avro Aero program, you look at what technology we've developed, Canada has always, I said, punched higher than our weight. Right now, there's a Cleantech 100 index that's the top 100 companies, you know, evaluated by worldwide, and Canada's second on that list. With this year for 2022, we have 13 companies on that list. Now, the U.S. is the largest out there with about 50 companies. But we've got 13. We're ahead of the UK. We're ahead of France. We're ahead of Germany, you know, Italy. We're ahead of China, places where in this specific sector, clean tech. So it's an area where we're doing well. And that a lot of it is due to government funding. You know, we've got great universities, great institutions developing these things. But how do you bring them into market? And our government has done that in a number of ways. You've got, as you mentioned, sort of subsidies and grants. But we also have investment through BDC, Business Development Bank Canada. They're one of the largest fund. They're probably the most active and close to the largest fund player, probably just behind some of the big institutional pension funds in terms of equity investment. So they've got a clean tech sector where they're going to be actually be co-investing alongside us at Black Tech Capital. So companies we put money into in the clean tech sector, they're going to invest into. They have one fund that's focused on clean tech. They also have a fund that's focused on deep tech, 
which is important again in this specifically emerging energy sector because you're not dealing with technology, say in the today, you know, the fintech space or something like that, where it's just something that's app-based where you can develop it within two to three years, it's out there. In the clean tech sector, you're looking at five, six, 10-year horizon sometimes for these things. So you want funds that are gonna be able to be in there for the long-term. And then again, when I was mentioning a country's small size, you've got things like EDC that not only will de-risk it for companies that are buying our product from overseas where they'll sort of back that up behind it, they've also got not well known, but they've also got a fund arm as well that will take equity stakes in companies. So you've got the government that's meeting all those sectors with grants and then also with equity investment and de-risking it from the perspective of export. So it, it you know obviously being venture capital, being private companies, startups, there's still risk involved. I mean, a good percentage will not succeed as we try these things out, but it's usually the building blocks, even though one company may not succeed, it's the building blocks to the next state and then the next and the next. So I think, you know, from your question in terms of has it de-risked enough for investors, I think substantially so. When you see grants where SDTC, Sustainable Development Technology Canada, will do a three to one match of private equity investment. So Black Tech Capital, we come in, say we put the half a million dollars into our company, those projects can get anywhere from a million and a half up to five, $10 million of investment on top of it, of non-diluted capital to help them get going. And then you've got something like BDC comes in alongside of it. So as an investor, I think it's a great space to be in because it's so de-risk with that much government money behind it. Yeah, and you know what, for myself, specifically when I'm investing in public market companies, it's been a, a huge focus of mine on just these massive gross margin, high, high fat, fast moving SaaS companies, cloud software, mm -hmm. because they're just so damn capital light. And mm -hmm. the one problem with energy is that it's incredibly capital intensive and it makes it so difficult to see that return on investment within three years. So if mm -hmm. the government doesn't come in and create a low barrier, a lower barrier to entry, then it's currently there. And we're seeing it right now where cloud's getting smashed, these businesses that have no competition. So like manufacturing companies and, and businesses and industrials where they have, they're like, people are like, these companies are never going away. They're creating the most important things in our, in our society. And there's no one that can come in and, and disrupt them because it's a 10-year capital cycle. Right. They're going to see return in a long enough period of time. But now, as you had mentioned, they've, our, our government is reducing that risk for people like you to come in, kind of identify the, the companies that are important or rather doing a really good job or have interesting technology, invest alongside you, and then mm -hmm. make that, not only that, non-dilutive funding, which is a right. huge thing for someone like yourself. Who doesn't want to get diluted out with your 500 grand because right. the government's going to 10x the size mm -hmm. and just make this competitive so that we can go up against and disrupt the old industries so i think that that's really really important to point out and i know that you have some experience with founders institute but i'd love for you to kind of speak to how your fund works alongside those accelerators across the country yeah so from us 
being involved with accelerators is key. So not only Founders Institute, we're involved with Climate Ventures, the Earth Tech Program, which is a joint collaboration with the Center for Social Innovation out of Toronto and a foresight out of Vancouver, involved with Haltech, a regional center here in Ontario. So those number of accelerators, because what I find, I mentor startups all the way around the world, right? And those founders that go through an accelerator, it's sort of that first proof that their business is going somewhere. It's usually their fairly regular rests. And so it gives the founders a good sense. Is this something I want to do? Do I want to be in business for myself and take all these risks and so on? Is it something that that's for me? And it also proves out some of those early stages, having people look at what is their product market fit? You know, where what customers should they be going after? How should they be segmenting things? So companies that have gone through an accelerator to me are in, you know, when you talk about de-risking, that's de-risked it in some sense for an investor in that they've proven something to someone versus, hey, I've got this idea and I'm just throwing it out there and I've never really tested it against anything. So it's it's fundamental and key for us when we're looking at who we want to invest into. So it's it's almost like a, a benchmark if you, you have to go through an accelerator. So in order to yeah. get funded by Black Tech, you need to have gone through whether at least in our our community it's a little bit different than founders institute but we've got the alberta ventures and you have all of Mm -hmm. these unique accelerators within the city and and in calgary if you've gone through that you've identified what you're you've said is product market fit which i'd like for you to maybe expand on so that people listening can figure out what that even means i know it's like a it's this word that a lot of investors talk about but what is it what what does product market fit mean the simplest way is putting it is somebody wants to buy your product, right? <laughs> it, you have that's, customers? Yeah, you, you've got a customer that's interested, right? And, I'll, and it, people often do it at an early stage of you know putting out a freemium model. Yes, that shows some interest, but especially if you've gone to the stage where you've gotten someone to pay for, some, for your product, then you know you really got something that people want. So again, customers being interested is the best way of, defining product market fit mm-hmm. and having that that customer return and buy it again yes uh, return and I buy always... it again or, or retain it on a monthly basis if you've got a SaaS model or you know if you're a b2b business have signed some sort of contractual obligation with you willingness to explore it th- those are all key and again for when i was saying about the accelerators you've even got some accelerators here across canada that if you've made it through the accelerator you're now qualified for government funding. For example, that program I mentioned, EarthTech, that coming out of that, SDTC says, great, you've passed stage one and your likelihood of being funded by us is all that much higher. So it's also key on the government side of things as well and not just the investor side from our perspective. Okay. So I want to kind of transition to just the overall market and in Canada more specifically, but of, of the overall private market sector. And I've heard a lot about American investors moving their their tushies up into Canada to find value. I think that was probably more maybe what was happening in 2021 as valuations were 100 times ARR. But right now, the public markets have seen multiples in growth stocks contract from what was, I mean, I think at its peak, 16 times next 12 months revenue to something that's closer to five to seven 
-hmm. And that's a significant reduction. Now, don't get me wrong. It's hard to compare public market to a seed round or seed stage business or an A round business. But how does an entrepreneur raise money best when these valuations in like ultra fast growing public companies are so low? How do they how do they get the proper valuation for their company from someone like you, knowing that you can deploy and Americans are coming up here to deploy at what they're assuming are going to be much lower multiples? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you juggle this like this new regime that we're in where capital is not free anymore? I mean, the I'll, I'll go back a little step on that. The regime where, uh, you know, multiples were going crazy and valuations were going crazy was really only a short time frame. You know, you're really talking about starting off a little bit in 2019, but into 2020 and 2021. So it it was a blip and the blip was going to burst at some point. You know, that's a bubble <laughs> in terms of how, how crazy they were. So it's not really a surprise that that dropped out. I mean, it went from something that was founder overly friendly to something that is coming back to a better balance, if not a little bit towards investor friendly, right? So when you're seeing companies out there trying to raise money, when you're seeing some of these larger value, you know, more public companies and their valuations coming back to more reasonable, investors as a whole are still looking to balance their portfolio. They're still looking to do some less risky ventures and more risky ventures. And so, when they're looking at the riskier side, if you want to call it that, the early stage money is still their best bet for being in the biggest return. So you're seeing investors starting to come out from as much of the later stages and de deploy some of that capital now to earlier stages. So from a founder standpoint, this is a great thing, right? Especially here in Canada, where typically we are even in the big booms of last year in 2021 and 2020 that early pre-seed seed early seed into summer series a was still relatively speaking underfunded in the canadian market where it was well funded still in the us so there's still a lot of opportunity you still have a lot of in these early days of 2022 you know probably going into the third quarter still all founders in the especially south of the board haven't really woken up to the fact that their valuations need to come down where the canadian valuations never really jumped up at those early stages so founders can really keep their valuations where they wanted it anyway and still be able to track canadian and u.s investors into them so i think for the Canadian founders in these, this is a good thing of, of where the valuations have gone and made it easier for them to raise capital versus last year. You know, everyone was just scrambling and running <laughs> to try to find this hot deal. Oh, I got to go into this this one. On the flip side, founders may have make sure they've done their homework because investors now with valuations being more reasonable aren't jumping on everything. So they have time to make sure it's a good investment. So overall, I believe it's a win-win for everybody. No, that's a really important distinction. And I've been trying to make that on this podcast and in my, you know, in my personal dealings with people that Canada itself has, we don't have that seed stage scene where there's investors wanting to put in long-term capital for those that, and, and take a risk on people. In the United States, they have that culture built in. Mm -hmm. With the exception of government, we just don't have enough people like yourself and it makes it very difficult to raise it makes it truly i've always said that the way to get to or i said or to seed or to develop out a seed stage funding 
culture in Canada is to have companies that have gone public and make their employees rich so that they too become venture capitalists. And we've done that with with Shopify. Obviously, a lot of that equity has been wiped. But right. uh, I think whether it be Slack, Shopify, BlackBerry back in the day, we often, at least in my opinion, that's where a lot of those seed stage investors come from because they've run into millions, multi-millions of dollars. They want to take chances on people that are like them who took a chance on them. And it, it, it creates this virtuous cycle that is really healthy. I believe we're getting there. And I've always, I, I extend that to saying that Alberta is unique and it's difficult to raise for tech startups because most of the investors are so so used to cash flowing businesses right out the gate because of oil and gas. You do a mm -hmm. service company and it pays you within 18 months. Whereas I think we're going to try to move away from that. And the government here is really, really, really doing its best to fund those businesses that might need five years before they show not just product market fit, but like a legitimate cash flowing business, one where it's not burning through all of its money. So when it comes to those KPIs or like, what are those things that you're looking for in a business before? And maybe actually I'm going to go in reverse here. I'd like to know what market you guys are specifically focusing on. Who are the founders you're looking for? And then after that, I'd love for you to kind of talk about this is what features of a business I want to invest in, whether it be growth, whether it's burn rate, what kind of product they're producing. If you wouldn't mind speaking to that, that would be great. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there in that question. I'll, and I'll try to break that down a bit by bit here. So for us, it is the clean tech sector is where the focus is. And clean tech is very broadly defined, right? That could be, we're looking at companies right now, anywhere from sustainable fish farm, new battery technology, carbon capture, se sensor range extension, you know, different types of agricultural venture. So it, it's wide ranging, right? So it's not, it's not got a narrow focus in terms of where the clean tech is. But when saying that, I am looking for sectors, there is that government support and grant and the government's willing to put money into it. So, and again, the government's got a broad definition of what clean tech is. Again, when we were talking about a little bit earlier there, it's about being able to make our investment dollars go further. So that that is the sector I'm looking at. I'm not, and it doesn't have to be just clean tech. People have a vision that it is just a hardware-based play. Not always, right? It, you can have some hard technology. You can have a software of it. Are you typically a lot, what you're seeing is some combination of both, right? So that's where I'm looking at in terms of the technology. I am relying on not only the expertise of those in my team, I'm actually relying on some of our Canadian universities to help me evaluate some of that technology. So it needs to be something that I can put in front of someone that say, hey, give me an opinion on where this technology is going and does it make sense? So th that's the thing I'm looking for. But at the early stage, the biggest metric I'm looking at is the founders themselves, right? The, the number one thing is, are they coachable, right? When you're into this as a founder, it's a long play, especially just talking about clean tech. So I'm looking at someone that is going to be there through this and wants to see it through, that they have some sort of passion for this, right? Whether they're, they're keen in solving a particular problem or this is just an area that's been of interest to them. That's my number one thing I'm looking for is from the founder and the founding team. Uh, do they have that 
we mentioned before, have they gone through an accelerator, right? That's another key metric for me in terms of they've got, somebody has looked at it. Have they developed the minimum viable product, an MVP, right? Or are they close to it at least, right? I like to see that it's gone out through, through some rigor when we're looking to invest some sort of money in there. They don't necessarily have to be, most of what I'm looking at are not necessarily generating revenue yet. And definitely, shouldn't say definitely, highly unlikely they're profitable, even if they are generating some revenue. But that's not a key. It's really what's the technology, what's the problem they're solving, and where they're taking it. And again, looking at the entrepreneur, looking at where they've gone through the journey, I spent time working with them, understanding them, and understand their ability to pivot. Most new companies are going to have to pivot some way, shape, and form. For example, the sustainable fish farming company that I'm talking about, their focus at the beginning was the large fish farmers, large major companies, because they developed a, an AI technology that could help them. But they found out they couldn't get into that industry very easily and break through. So they pivoted and small, focused more on the small and medium-sized fish farmers and really rejigged their product to focus on that industry. So again, it's that founder's ability to see what's there, take advice, look at the market and and adapt and be able to jump in on and, and change and modify, not their overall vision and strategy, but at least what they had to develop to get going and keep it moving. Well, and, and just seeing what those businesses need in order to for them to see their product, make sure that they're willing to pay the money that it requires. And then make it so that it it makes their their operating business that much better, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. I think for I mean an entrepreneur bringing on venture money, they want leadership from you as well. Yes. And I think that there it's oftentimes a team a team event where you have the experience, you have the capital, and they have in a lot of ways they have the they're young and they're full of of they're full of energy and maybe not right. young, but just like they they have the the long-term horizon and, and the willingness to to like you said pivot and create and take a chance you know so for you you're an investor but you also have investors like you have lps um right. what are you looking for from lps is there i don't know how much you're you're willing to speak to this but a lot of people listening to this i think are often investors more so than they are necessarily entrepreneurs and there's maybe a little bit of a mix but is there check sizes? What does it take to become a seed stage LP? So I'll, I'll answer this more from a, a generality because there are restrictions in terms of what we're speak, what I'm allowed to speak about publicly. But in general, when you're investing into a venture fund or even into a business, you typically need to be in Canada an accredited investor. That's typically in Canada and the US and the defin- you can look that up and what the definition is, but it's usually X amount of income over the last two years, somewhere in the you know hundred dollars to $200,000 range or have a net worth in the million plus area. So, I mean, there, there's some different criteria. That's usually what it takes to be an investor. However, I will say that it's not well developed here it's just starting but there are crowdfunding platforms that extend that and that is something that is coming in a new horizon the the regulations and rules have changed within the last year to allow more people to to look at that so that's another area but 
Typically, when you're investor going into a venture fund, the venture fund size limits investors to, in the U.S., it's 100 investors. It's typically capped off. In Canada, we're at fifth to be exempt from all the filings and so on that you'd have to do to the security commissions, which would just make it prohibitive. So at that range, people are typically in 50K plus check sizes that they're they're writing into venture funds in, in general. So that that's what it takes. Now, if you're going in as, on the flip side, if you were going in, say, just as an angel investor, a lot of people think, oh, I can go into an angel investor into a company. I can write, yes, it allows you to write smaller check sizes per se, but really to do that well you've got to be invested in 10 plus companies to to balance out your risk and you've got to take more time understanding what those companies are where you're putting your money into so the amount you deploy would be similar to what you, if you put into a venture fund at the end of the day where that de-risking because you're dealing with a portfolio of companies through the venture fund is the same as if you develop your own portfolio is the same so to me if you want to it becomes between if you want to put your money into a venture fund, you're letting somebody balance that risk for you, similar if you put your money into a mutual fund today, or if you want to be an angel investor, then you have to be willing to be much more active and invest in those 10 plus companies and balance that risk yourself. Right. So so that's what I'm looking for when I'm when specifically for black tech capital investors to me, and this applies to entrepreneurs as it does to a venture fund. You want to find investors that are matching your thesis, right? And matching what your criteria are. So as an entrepreneur, you mentioned it a little bit, you want investors that are going to come in, work with you, be able to develop. You can utilize their strategic networks. You can utilize their expertise. The same as if you're raising a venture fund in general, you're looking to have investors that are aligned with the mission that you want to do. So they have to be aligned with impact investing. So for us, our investors are typically impact focused, right? They want to make a difference, as I say, for people and planet. They want to make a difference with us specifically with underrepresented founders, you know, so either or both. So investors for us are those that are on board with our mission and what we want to do. Mm -hmm. That was really well put. I I always struggle to figure out, because for myself, when I got started, it was through AngelList. I feel like I almost lied to get in and I was like 21. <laughs> right. um, and from there, it helped for me. It helped me learn a lot. Becoming my mm -hmm. first LP and in, in, in something early on in my life, it allowed for me to kind of learn by doing. Right. But I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different resources out there. But I always I think hearing it from the horse's mouth, in, in a sense, from from you and, and explaining what the difference between the US and, the, and Canada might be. And I think it's $250,000 plus to be accredited in Canada. I could be wrong. And you're right, over a million it, it bucks. It changes by province. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. All right. That mm -hmm. makes sense. But yeah, no, I think that's helpful. It, I think most people end up getting their, their, they dip their toes via a family and friends round or something along those lines. And that way you can skirt the, the, the accredited investor rules. But generally speaking, no, I, I thought that was a really great definition. So in closing, I, I just, I'll just add a little bit on that. And I think there's stuff people should keep their eye on that's coming out there. You are, as I said, there are some more crowdfunding platforms that are coming out that will allow people that don't fit that full definition 
to be able to do that because you're going through an exempt market dealer that does that qualification to make sure that it's not, you know, grandma spending all her of her retirement money to get into something and then can't, you know, feed herself or something because they're banking on this. So, I mean, in general, you know, you're saying, especially the younger age, I would just give this advice, know what you're willing to risk, right? Don't be banking on something that, hey, I'm going to put my money in and then if it's all gone, I can't feed myself, right? <laughs> but, yeah. you know, be, be smart about it. <laughs> yeah, make sure it's not impairing your retirement goals. It's not impairing anything. Yeah. Make sure it's something that you can see go to zero because yeah. I was listening to the All In podcast this past weekend and they had talked about all of the funds that raised over a billion dollars. So now we're getting well past seed stage A round mm -hmm. to people that are investing more B through E, D, E, F, Z. And these are investors that are investing in, in the Ubers of the world. And they had talked about how there was something over 1,200 billion plus size funds and less than 2% of them return capital to investors. Yep. Mm -hmm. Which is shocking to me. Yep. And so for those that are, are willing to, and this is where, why I, if I were to ever get involved and if I were to ever be delivering capital to somebody, it would be in the seed stage where you're not playing. I always find... Go to the poker table that has the worst players at it and has some a lot of opportunity because it's easier to win. And uh, the last thing I'd want to do is go into a space where you're competing with Chamath Palahapitiya and and all of these these superstar venture capitalists. And I think in Canada, we lack that and it's opportunity. That isn't a bad thing. So it's it's nice to see people like yourself out there providing capital in a space that I think Canada requires and it's emerging. It has all the w tailwinds behind it, like clean tech in Canada. The government loves you. Yep. And that is a good thing. That's exactly where you should be. Where you should be moving, whether you be an entrepreneur or an LP or or whatever. That's exactly, in my opinion, all the advice I would give. So, my closing question is often career and advice focused for young people. I mean, it's reform millennials. I we're getting a little old now, but in Canada, what would you? I, I just want you to kind of speak to what you would like to see if you were a young entrepreneur or employee what would you focus on like if you're just coming out of university or college what industry or style company would you focus on if it was you i mean i have a biased answer right i mean yeah. it, i i think the clean tech sector i mean i was theoretically in that sector even before it was fashionable coming out of university my or in university my final year design project as an engineer was converting a pickup truck to run a natural gas right now natural gas is it wouldn't be more passe today you'd be looking at doing it hydrogen fueled but i mean that interest was there from a from a very early stage for me uh, i'd be looking at what does the you know what does our world need for the future right we are just coming out of a pandemic that the world wasn't really prepared for right we are going to go into some massive climate crisis over the next five to 10 years, right? It's, we're at the point where it is unavoidable, right? As much as people want to say, well, can we do this? Limit the rise to one and a half degrees. Every scientific expert that I talk to and I'm involved with a lot, you know, avoiding it at this stage is almost next to impossible, right? But being prepared for what we're going to face is key, right? So if I'm a young person, I'm not I'm a I'm not from the pessimistic point viewpoint, it's all doom and gloom. As a human species, we were always really good at responding to the things. So if I was coming out of university and college and saying, 
where can I make that bigger difference, right? You, you know, our parents and our parents' parents' generation, you know, we went to work to make money to put food on the table, whereas today the younger people, a lot of us haven't had to, a lot of people haven't had to face, I shouldn't say us, haven't had to face that same challenges. Some have, so I'm not discounting the people that have, but if you don't have those challenges about, okay, I need to just make money to put food on the table, look where you can do a difference. Look where you can do something that you're going to enjoy and being helping prepare the world for the climate challenges that we're going to face, whether the food challenges, whether the energy challenges, you know, you, you'll not only, I think, still a lot of room for some good profit and, and make some good money at it. It's also a place to really enjoy what you're doing. You know, you'll enjoy, hey, I woke up today and made a difference, right? So, so again, that is exactly where I would focus my attention and, and energy is into those specific fields, right? And the clean tech field. And I said it's broad, so it's not like you have to pick one particular thing or other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm, I've been on record saying this a few times on this podcast where I've, I've said that. I believe that the energy companies of tomorrow are the ones of today, the difference being that the technology that they deploy is going to look completely different. And whether it be carbon capture or efficient, efficient ways to to produce energy so that we can then transport it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that it's incredibly important for us to develop as fast as we possibly can so that we don't have to go through this because I'm, I'm an anti degrowther. And if we don't, I, I I'm of the opinion that standard of living increasing is the most important thing for the rest of the world to do, but you need to do it in a carbon efficient way. How do we produce those products for the population of the world? And for me, Canada is clearly on the, the forefront of this it's very exciting your fund is helping these people get there so brian thank you so much for being so gracious with your time if you wouldn't mind maybe if there's investors that are wanting to get in touch with you or entrepreneurs that that think that your mandate makes a lot of sense for them is there some socials emails website that they can they can kind of reach out sure the easiest way to get a hold of me is on linkedin so Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Duarte, D-U-A-R-T-E, finding me on LinkedIn. That's that's the social media that I'm most active on. Usually very good at responding to people, messaging, you know, so get a hold of me through there. Can always be reached at email at B-Duarte, B-D-U-A-R-T-E at blacktechcapital.com. So that's a, an email to reach me at. So those two ways. The fund doesn't have a, a website up and running yet for, for various it's a, a regulatory reasons. But uh, so LinkedIn and email are the best. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Thanks again, Brian. I really appreciate your time and uh, I look forward to chatting in the future. Well, thank you very much, Joel. And and just a little plug for you. I mean, I think what you're doing is important. I mean, I'll, I'll add back to the question on, you know, what people should look at and in going and investing, listening to podcasts like yours and others and educating themselves is the best way people can do to figure out what they should be doing and where they should be going and where deploying their capital. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to spread, spread a little bit of my knowledge out there on what we're doing and, and this important mission. And, you know, generating and creating this new emerging energy future for Canada. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Chat soon. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want any additional context or links to any of the podcasts or articles we mentioned, head over to our website. It's reformmillennials.com. While you're on the site, make sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. This should be common sense, but the podcast and website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for gold investment management, and all opinions expressed by him and guests of the podcast 
are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM Wealth or Gold Investment Management. GIM clients may hold positions discussed in the podcast. Thanks for listening.